Hello, and welcome back to the second series of Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxon, office coordinator at the Sainsbury Institute and a researcher of Japanese war heritage. This week, the tables are turned as Professor Simon Kainer, director of the Sainsbury Institute, interviews me on the topic of my recently completed master's thesis, Reinterpreting Difficult Heritage. The case study of my research is Mimizuka, the Hill of Ears, a burial mound containing tens of thousands of pickled ears and noses taken from the Joseon Korean and Ming Chinese soldiers in Toitomi Hideyoshi's 16th century invasion of Korea, the Imjin War. Located in tourist hub of Kyoto, Higashiyama district, my research explores how the language barrier limits international engagement at the site and how analyzing Google Maps reviews reveals how tourist stakeholders in its war history engage with it and their desire or lack thereof for it to be interpreted by others. I also talked to Simon about the challenges and benefits of taking a digital approach to ethnographic research and offers some reflections on the first series of Beyond Japan. We hope you enjoy the show. So, first of all, we would love to know a little bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests brought you there? I suppose I should introduce myself first. I'm obviously Oliver Moxon, the host of Beyond Japan. I've just completed my MA at the University of East Anglia in Cultural Heritage and Museum Studies. And my thesis topic for that was looking at a site called Mimizuka in Kyoto, the Hill of Ears and uh, how that's been engaged with by different nationalities. So my interest in Japanese heritage goes back about six years to when I was barely 20 years old, and I'd just finished school and was just traveling in Asia. I began in Thailand, and when my visa ran out, I decided on a whim to go to Japan, uh, just because I heard it was an interesting place to see. And I stayed with a few Japanese families and was intrigued by the country and its culture and the people. And, of course, I went to many museums when I was traveling. And I was struck by how going to certain museums about the Asia-Pacific War, how little I could access, being totally unable to speak Japanese, although I could tell the atmosphere was significantly different from the places where there were English language. And I was just wondering, why is that? And it's sort of that question which brought me to my thesis. Wonderful. So... How did you, I'm intrigued, I'm often intrigued as to how people first encounter the site or the material that it is they want to work on. Mm-hmm. And you've obviously become a great specialist on Mimizuka, on the, the Hill of the Ears. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about how you did, did were, you, were you on a walk? Had you encountered it in the literature? How did you, why, how did you first come across it? And then what was it about it that made you think that, ah, I've now found the object of my study, which is something <laughs> I think many researchers struggle with uh, when they're first starting out? Well, it happened when I was on my year abroad as part of my undergraduate in Japanese studies. I was based in Kyoto, studying at Doshisha University. And I was doing my first bit of funded research looking at Asia-Pacific memorials in central Kyoto. So I was actually looking for air raid memorials in the city, uh, which had gone forgotten and a bit neglected, as well as other grander monuments to uh, the Imperial Japanese Army inside of certain shrines. 
And walking around the Higashiyama district, which is next to Gion, you have certain temples like Kyomizadera, well, World Heritage Sites, uh, with lots of tourist foot traffic, which anyone in Kyoto will be happy to tell you. And just walking around that area, I noticed this rather large mound right behind the Kyoto National Museum and stopped to have a look and saw the characters Mimizuka. I thought, surely that can't really be a hill of ears, but it was. Looking at the sign, it says that it's a war relic from the Imjin War, which happened in 1592 to 1598 when Toyotomi Hideyoshi invaded the Korean peninsula, then under Joseon, um, Korea. And the way that they tallied up their victories was by cutting off the ears and noses of uh, Korean soldiers, but also civilians. And they were pickled in salt and brought back so that the samurai could collect their rewards. And they ended up being interred there. And it was shocking. You know, I mean, there's nothing quite like it I've ever come across before. I don't know if you have, Simon, but it's certainly an unusual heritage site. And it was all the more striking to think this is slap bang in the middle of Kyoto's major tourist area. So going on from that, I was surprised that there wasn't any English signage either, because Kyoto is quite good for that. It will have, uh, at most heritage sites, at least three different languages, uh, Japanese, English, and Chinese being the most popular, I think. And so the total absence of English, but the inclusion of Korean seemed curious to me. It told me a lot about who they thought would be interested in the sites and who they didn't want to be interested in the sites. And this was um, capped off by a tiny little laminated sign which said, on account of the troublesome crows, please don't leave any offerings here. Uh, which, obviously, I mean, <laughs> you go to the shrine over the road and see plenty of offerings there. So these must have been very selective crows. Or the heritage management didn't want people leaving offerings there. So there were lots of these little observations which piqued my interest about it. But I didn't really go into Mimizuka too much then. It was only when I came to my MA thesis that it came back into my, uh, into my mind as I was originally planning to go abroad to Japan in 2020. Of course, uh, my tickets were on March 2020 and a week before my flight was due, as we all know, <laughs> things came to a grinding halt and things were postponed and eventually canceled. So that was thrown out the window. And I had to think a lot about what I was going to do for my thesis. How can you talk about heritage half a world away without going there? Yeah, well, first of all, you asked me whether I've ever seen anything like Mimizuka, and I'd have to say no. And I think one of the things that you've touched on, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, of course, his campaigns in Korea during the Imjin Wars. And I think it's particularly interesting that this monument is in Kyoto because, of course, Toyotomi Hideyoshi has such a connection with Kyoto. A, a difficult connection with Kyoto yeah. in many ways because of what was going on there. Um, so that in itself is interesting. But also the, another thing that strikes me is that I guess your average tourist thinking about war memorials wouldn't think about Kyoto at all. They might think about Hiroshima, obviously, mm -hmm. Nagasaki, or they might think about Gaskuni in Tokyo, but they're not going to think about Kyoto and war memorials as being yeah. an obvious place. So I think that in some ways makes it even more striking yeah, and mm -hmm. shocking, obviously, in what's there. In terms of the mounds, the things that makes me think about are some of the shrines where people go to deposit. You know, I think there's a famous one for the rings through cow's noses, for example, and there's a, there's a shrine for 
the broken needles and things like that. <laughs> where you sort of you go and it, it's it's almost got what, the way you do, you talk about all these things being brought back and then deposited in what's in this one place. Mm. It kind of conjures up images of that, which may be interesting to think about later on. But but yeah, talk a little bit more about the impact that the pandemic has had on your research. Obviously, doing an MA in cultural heritage with a Japanese theme and laying all those plans because doing all that planning for the research is a very big part of of doing a successful research project in the first instance and then very rapidly having to completely adapt um, those plans give us an idea of, of what some of the challenges were um, in adapting the plans and uh, and how it limited or maybe opened up new opportunities for doing research in slightly different ways yeah, well, I think um, I was lucky, to be honest, because I was doing my master's part-time, and so I had much more time than anyone else in my course had to readjust and uh, totally rethink what they were going to do. So I was uh, very fortunate in that regard. But when it comes to challenges, there was only one really big challenge, and that was accepting that there's just not going to be any means of travelling. And once that was accepted, it was simply a matter of finding an alternative means of engaging with the same sites. And I think we're all very familiar with how many different aspects of life can be moved online over the numerous lockdowns that we've had. And so it got me thinking about, well, surely people must be engaging with these sites online as well. Anyone who's traveled has most likely used Google Maps as a service to get around unfamiliar streets and uh, learn how to pronounce a certain word in English. And so thinking about that, I looked at Mimizuka's Google Maps points and was surprised to find a wealth of reviews there in multiple different languages, only a handful which were in English, which sort of played into this hypothesis I had that people who are reliant on English language just don't access the sites, and yet so many others do. So that's the direction I went in. Really interesting. I think you've been very creative in the way that you've approached this whole thing, and uh, amazing the sort of the resilience that you've demonstrated in being able to sort of reshape your project. I think one of the things that struck me about what you're doing is that okay, perhaps perhaps you know many. I'm sure many people are thinking, okay, so you can see what's available online. But, um, but the data you've been tackling is available in, as you said, it's a multitude of different languages, some of them not so straightforward and, and easy to grasp, even with Google Translate, <laughs> I suspect. And, uh, and, you know, I think a lot of the sources that you've been using are in Korean and in Chinese. I know you've got good Japanese, but what have been um, some of the issues that you've been facing in terms of trying to deal with online data in all these different languages? And, and what sort of methodologies have you been able to draw on to help you overcome those? Yes, well, I find that online data has a lot of benefits in the sense that it's very easy to copy and paste things down. It's uh, very easy to transfer different formats uh, to put it into an Excel spreadsheet. But of course, language was the biggest challenge. My own language limitations, I, uh, I speak Japanese and English, so I was able to cover one language group, but I had, had to look for translators to help me with the other ones. And very luckily, my brother knows a Korean to English translator who offered to help with the Korean reviews, which made up the bulk of reviews of the site. So having a good network is very <laughs> useful when it comes to dealing with multilingual sources. And that's definitely something I want to carry forward with future research. Another challenge is that with online data, particularly in, in online forums, 
it's argued that people are more honest about their opinions. This can lead to more extreme opinions, things people might not really say in real life if they were asked the same question. And that's definitely something I came across. Uh, it wasn't very common, but there were some rather lengthy, ranty Japanese reviews which seemed to take the matter very personally that Koreans were interested in the sites and were making references to very sensitive political topics, such as the comfort woman issue of the Second World War, with issue of reparations, and trying to downplay the atrocity that Mimizuka represented by comparing it with other atrocities, such as Hiroshima and Nagasaki, or the Mongol invasion of Japan uh, in the 14th century. And it's not academic speech either. It's, I, I don't know if you troll the online forums, Simon, but people do just seem to bash the keyboard out and it's very abbreviated, harsh language. And to translate that and to try and capture the authentic sentiment of that, it was a real challenge. I've tried translating diaries, I've tried translating academic texts, and that was, in comparison, much easier because it's objective fact in a lot of ways, or it's relatable sentiments. But with stuff like this, <laughs> where I personally don't believe what the source text is saying, and then I have to try and transfer that into English, it's, it's very difficult. Yeah. So when you say that people are being... Sorry, this isn't one of our prepared questions, but when you say that you feel people are being more honest mm -hmm. in writing those reviews, how do you critically assess that assumption that you're making? Yes. Well, there is some methodological means of assessing the veracity of these reviews. I did have to mention a caveat in my thesis that, of course, one person can have multiple Google Maps accounts and leave multiple reviews to force a certain sentiment. But having read through all of them, I don't get that impression. There are ways of telling if someone is saying the same thing 10 times over, and that just doesn't come across when you read them. So, yeah, yeah, I think that it's <laughs> not a matter of algorithms or uh, machine learning te uh, techniques. It's just a matter of reading it and getting a sense for it. And, uh, yeah, these things stand out if someone is just copying and pasting um, a certain point of view. It's really interesting. So how, many, how many reviews altogether did you look at? So there was 160 written reviews okay. across... Um, four key language groups. 160 reviews. And so out of those 160, if you were to pull out maybe just one or two, which were the most surprising and impactful of those reviews for you as an individual? Mm. Yes, I think that the most surprising ones for me were a number of the Korean ones, which it's, it really carries through how much they are moved by what they see at Mimizuka. And even though it's been translated from the source language into English, I was struck by how much this place meant to them and how some Koreans, some Koreans are leaving reviews without having actually been to Mimizuka saying, I will definitely go next time in Kyoto. I didn't know about it the first time I was there. And it may seem like a small sample number, but I don't think numbers are the most important thing here. If, it, if it's very meaningful to a small group, it's still meaningful. So that definitely moved me. But of course, there was anger as well in many of these Korean reviews about what had happened. And 
I was surprised by where this anger was directed because it was often directed at uh, Toyotomi Hideyoshi. There was a rather colourful review where someone mentioned swearing at uh, Toyotomi Shrine, where he's <laughs> where he's uh, honoured uh, after going to Mimizuka to make it, to make their feelings felt. And there were a few people who were angry against the Japanese states. Whether that can be called the same thing in those times, it's hard to say. But none of this anger was directed at the real people they engaged. And where there was references to the to Japanese people they had met on, on their travels, uh, it was often heartwarming. So one bit of information about Mizuka I had no idea about uh, was of a flower shop nearby, run by uh, Oji-san, Ba-san, a lovely old couple, who knew that if you came in there and uh, didn't speak Japanese, you were probably looking for some like chrysanthemums to leave at the shrine. There was, a, there was this trend that came across multiple reviews and people were signposting, go to this flower shop and talk to them and they will give you what you're looking for. That for me seemed like a, a bit of a heartwarming takeaway that even when there, a lot of people are showing anger through patriotic sentiment, that doesn't naturally trickle through to the real people they meet. There is a, a bit of a gap between the two. That's really interesting. Actually, it leads me nicely onto my next question. And you talk that word heartwarming that you use, because I think maybe for many people, perhaps people who are not necessarily specialists in heritage studies or that, many people think of heritage as something to be enjoyed or cherished. But um, I think in your work, you talk about uh, difficult heritage. And I know that terms like dark heritage or dissonant heritage suggest something rather different. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about that, how you view that and how your work in, on Mimizuka fits into other studies of material traces of wars in Japanese history. Yeah, when I started looking at war heritage in Japan, I almost immediately came across the term dark heritage, which at first seemed like a useful way of, of looking at these sites. Uh, dark heritage refers to sites related to death or dark history, where there's been events of torture or that kind of thing. But there soon became problems with the idea in that it's so broad. Uh, I mean, death can be anything from a simple gravestone to Auschwitz to you know, civil, genocide uh, sites. So it's almost too broad. And I found difficult heritage to be a more useful notion. So I found through my MA course in cultural heritage that heritage is often portrayed as a joyful thing. It is a testament to, well, world heritage, as UNESCO defines it, is a testament to humanity and to the, the, the good of humanity. And this has excluded a lot of meaningful heritage sites, which don't inspire uh, hope of uh, united humanity or utopian images like that, but they still mean a lot to people and are worthy of recognition, uh, for funding, of preservation. So I think that by being focused on heritage as just a joyful tourist experience, something to do with the kids, it's led to this blinkering of sorts of authorised heritage bodies like um, English heritage or um, Japan heritage, where they can only look at sites that can be interpreted in a fun or positive way, and that's left these sites which are, you know, people want 
to be recognized and they want to be engaged and made accessible, they've left them to be left in the shadows to become obscured. Mm, I think that's really interesting. I know the Australian scholar, very distinguished Australian scholar of heritage um, studies, Laura Jane Smith, has talked about the, the authorized heritage discourse. It's this kind of um, depends who your voice of authority is, I suppose. And um, I know we've chatted in the past about uh, where in Japan that authority might reside. And people have often spoken to me about the, the Agency for Cultural Affairs, for example, the Bunkacho, and sites of national importance that are interpreted, not only in terms of the labels that get put up, but also just the whole way in which a site is, um, is displayed so that you can almost recognise uh, a, a, a bunkajor managed site mm. from a distance, in perhaps the same way as uh, in the UK, we're used to the kind of the the shared branding across the National Trust, for example. One could say there's a kind of authorised heritage discourse going there. But what in what ways do you think Mimizuka, in particular, might challenge that authorised heritage discourse in Japan? Well, with with Mimizuka, I think that. Its placements is what really helps in challenging authorized heritage discourse because it's just surrounded by uh, world heritage sites which attracts so many tourists in normal circumstances to the area. And there are pretty clear signs that whoever is running music or looking after it doesn't really want to draw too much attention to it, at least not from people who aren't part of the stakeholder groups, people who, whose national history coincides with Mimizuka. And this has even led to um, one stakeholder group, Chinese tourists, from being excluded because in the Indian War, there were also Ming soldiers fighting alongside the Koreans whose ears were inevitably taken <laughs> along with the Koreans, and they're also buried there, yet there's no Chinese signage to commemorate that. So the way that my study of Mimizuka aims to challenge authorized heritage discourse is to draw attention to how, how this sort of exacerbates the painful memories of war and how it can't be stifled, how like, people who want to engage with it will ultimately engage with it and they will try and find other avenues of raising its profile. For example, with the Korean reviews, there were pretty much consistently five-star reviews, even though they disliked what was represented there because, and this was clearly stated sometimes, it meant that it would raise the online profile of the sites and perhaps gain more international attention that way. So you're saying that you think that even though it, was, it could be very painful to engage with these places, what these reviews are demonstrating is that um, there's a tremendous appreciation that these places, or Mimizuka as a place, is being presented mm -hmm. in this way. It, it is accessible for visitors to go yeah. and sort of whatever bit of memorialization um, mm. they're going to be undertaking. It's very valuable. Yeah, and there are multiple people who noted, pointed out that there was a lack of English signage and they were aware of the limitations this created. Uh, I mean, I don't want to advocate English as a, as a world language necessarily, but these people recognised that without English signage, the number of people who can access it are severely reduced. So people are aware of these, these strategies. Yeah, very interesting. So the MA thesis is all done and dusted and submitted. So um, what do you plan to, to do next, Ollie? How are you going to develop some of these ideas for your research? Well, the next natural step from an MA is to try out for a PhD. And I'll be applying for next year to have a go at that. 
I guess I have some pie in the sky ideas of where this would, this would go one day. I would love to be able to collaborate with uh, heritage researchers who are native speakers of Korean and Japanese and stakeholder languages so that it might broaden the net of things. Um, I'd like to return to my scraps plans from March 2020 of doing ethnographic interviews at the site and being able to have more meaningful conversations with the people who go there to really open the door where I've put my foot in the frame with my MA thesis and the, these digital reviews. Excellent. Well, I think we're all very much looking forward to seeing what you come up with um, as the next stages and obviously wish you every success with uh, you know, moving on to a PhD programme and taking all these great ideas, I think, to the next level. So just to round things off, really, I mean, you've been running uh, this wonderful series of Beyond Japan podcasts very successfully. I think it's been one of the best initiatives that we've been able to do through the Centre of Japanese Studies and the Sainsbury Institute all during this pandemic. And I know that there's a lovely report that we're just mulling over at the moment and we'll be making that public in the very near future. And you've got some great feedback um, in there, I think just demonstrating how much this initiative has been appreciated. I think with many people sitting at home in this wonderful modern world now where it's much harder to see people. And I think Listening into podcasts gives you a, an immediacy, mm. um, which perhaps other kinds of online engagement don't necessarily give us. But what for you has been the most important lesson of, uh, of doing all of these podcast episodes over the last 18 months or so? The most important lesson for me, without doubt, has been that academics would love to share what they study. I think we have this idea in popular culture of academia being an ivory tower situation where, uh, <laughs> you know, you, it's very difficult to um, connect that to the public, but that's just not the case. Uh, that's what I found in the podcast is that if you give people a public platform, if you give uh, whether they're doctors, professors, what, what, in whatever, whatever position, they're very happy and very excited to share what they've been studying and to try and reach a wider audience with that. So I think that it's just a matter of providing the means for academics to have a, a, a public-friendly means of uh, sharing their research. Well, that's, that's really great to hear. And I think this is my opportunity since we've uh, we sort of turned, turned the tables on you um, for this episode of this new season. And I think I'd, I'd just like to wrap up by saying a huge thank you to you and uh, congratulations to you for bringing so many amazing different topics um, to that wider audience. And I'd absolutely agree with you that I think all academics are very keen to make sure that as their, their res results reach as wide an audience as possible. And I think through these Beyond Japan podcasts, you've really contributed to that. So, uh, so wonderful stuff. And so, but just before we finish, just before you, we let you off the hook, perhaps you'd just like to share with us the, any other projects that you're currently working on. Well, I've uh, been re reached out to recently by a professor in Kyoto to uh, contribute to a book on the hidden histories of Kyoto. And this will return to my first research project, looking at Asia-Pacific War Memorials, in particular the air raid memorials in the city. And I will be arguing the case that the number of deaths does not necessarily relate to the value of the memorial. So I have had in the past, when I've discussed these air memorials, in total they come to about 250 deaths. And I've had some professors of war history in Japan say, well, if you look at Osaka just over the ridge, the tens of thousands of people died there in the incendiary bombings, so what does this matter? And having read 
the diaries of the survivors of the bombings, uh, I firmly believe that you don't need a huge number for a tragic death like that to be significant. So I'll be also translating some of these diary entries uh, and making them available in English for the first time. Oh, and just quickly, I also have a book chapter that's hopefully coming out sometime next year, uh, titled Camouflaged War Heritage, Differing Narratives and Accessibility at Bressiated War Heritage Sites in Kyoto, Japan. That'll be coming out in the Palgrave and Macmillan series uh, in the book Engaging with War Memory, Legacies of East Asian Conflicts, 1930-1945. So there's that to look forward to, too. Wonderful. That's a, that's a great project to be working on. So sounds to me like you're going to be pretty busy um, over, the, <laughs> over the next little while. But uh, we're very much looking forward to seeing how this new series of Beyond Japan podcasts pans out. I know you've got some great speakers lined up. Um, talking about their research as well but um, just to finish off by thanking you once again and thank you for giving up time uh, to talk about your own research having spent so much time over the last year hearing about everybody else's research so it's been a thank pleasure. you thanks Simon you can find a link to my website olivermoxham.wordpress.com in the description below next week we'll be joined by Professor Caleb Carter Assistant Professor of Japanese Religions and Buddhist Studies at Kyushu University to discuss power spots, or power spotto, as they're known in Japan. Caleb walks us through how a global movement, which began in 1960s USA and UK, claiming the healing energies at key sites of natural beauty, came to be embraced in Japan, peaking in popularity as recently as 2010. We explore how this communal term has been applied at Shinto shrines and Buddhist temples to a mixed reception from religious authorities, as well as unexpected uses of the term at heritage sites of a more grisly nature, such as Mimizuka. We hope you join us then. Thank you for listening.